If you enjoyed these podcasts, check out Byron Reese's newest book. It's about artificial intelligence and covers all the topics addressed on Voices in AI. It's called The Fourth Age, Smart Robots, Conscious Computers, and the Future of Humanity. And it's available now wherever fine books are sold. This is Voices in AI brought to you by GigaOM. I'm Byron Reese. Today, today I'm so excited. My guest is Tiger Tiarajan. He is the president and CEO at Ginpak. He holds a degree in mechanical engineering, and he also holds an MBA. Welcome to the show, Tiger. Byron, uh, great to be on the show, and thank you. So let's start. Tell me about Ginpak, what your mission is and, and how it came about. Our mission uh, continues to be, Byron, to work with global enterprises in a variety of industries to actually help them become more competitive in the markets they are in. And we do that by actually helping them undertake really change agendas, transformation agendas to you know, drive value for them, either by helping them drive growth or better pricing or better risk management, lower fraud, uh, better working capital, better cash flow, et cetera. And our history goes back to when we were set up as an enterprise and a 100% subsidiary of the General Electric Company, GE, in the late 90s. And then in 2005, seven years into our existence, we spun off into a separate company so that we could serve other clients. Today, we are about $3 billion in revenue serving 700 clients across the globe. GE continues to be a big relationship of ours, but only accounts for less than 10% of our revenue as compared to everyone else who accounts for the balance 90%. And tell me, you're, you're using artificial intelligence to, to achieve that mission in, in some cases. Can you talk about that, like what you're doing? So Byron, early days, um, I would say about five plus years back, we came to the conclusion that digital is gonna pretty dramatically change the way work gets done along many dimensions. And uh, we picked 12 different digital technologies to actually bring into the company, build capabilities, and change the way a lot of our services get delivered and a lot of the way work gets done by our clients. And one of them we picked was artificial intelligence. Uh, Within the family of AI, we picked computer vision. We picked computational linguistic, computational linguistics. Uh, We picked machine learning, uh, three examples that are very relevant to the kind of services we offer. And we've gone down the path of building those capabilities, acquiring those capabilities, partnering with other companies in the ecosystem on those capabilities so that we can change the way work gets done and services get delivered in a, in I would say, a dramatic fashion that I would suspect some of us could not have imagined. Well, don't just leave it there. Give give me an example of something uh, dramatic that's happened. <laughs> uh, I'll give you a couple. Uh, uh, some of the clients that we deal with are banks. And uh, think about uh, uh, a bank that is in the business of small and medium business lending. So half a million dollar leases for an equipment or a loan for an equipment to a mid-market company that is actually manufacturing a product somewhere in Ohio, uh, et cetera. And uh, the way the small business lending world works is that the customer uh, gives to the salesperson a bunch of documents, and this would be financial statements of the company, uh, cash flows of the company, et cetera, et cetera. A lot of those documents are produced by these companies in their own way. They are audited by a small audit firm 
somewhere in the vicinity. And therefore, they are written up in different ways with different accounting standards and so on. Now, when a bank receives it, typically they would have to change it to actually match their understanding of cash flow the way they define it. They have to recast all the numbers. They have to read the footnotes. And then after a few days, they have five questions to ask. So they go back to the customer, ask those questions. And finally, it takes about 15 days, 20 days in some cases to say, hey, customer, I've given you an approval for half a million dollars. Go buy our equipment. Now, in today's world, that is way too long. And now if you bring in a combination of being able to read those documents, read unstructured data, read the language in the footnotes, interpret it using you know, link, computational linguistics that then converts it into a specific standard financial statement in the way that particular bank understands financial statements, the way their definitions work. You could actually argue that I could take a decision, the bank could take a decision in 30 minutes. So think about the ability to tell a customer that your application for a loan to buy your equipment is approved in 30 minutes versus three weeks. I mean, that makes a huge difference to the small medium enterprise. That makes a huge difference to their business, their ability to grow. And if you think about the U.S. and you think about small medium enterprises in the U.S., that is the backbone of this economy. Uh, we are beginning to see the use of this in a number of our banking relationships. Uh, I would say it's still early days. And I would say it, it could make a huge difference to the top line of the banks, to the pricing power of the banks, to the ability to actually satisfy your customer dramatically. And I think all, that is a great example of some of the way that service changes versus a human being spending a lot of their time in actually uh, parsing the data before they take the decision. Now, in the end, the decision, by the way, is still taken by the human being who brings the expertise, which is why we think about AI as always a combination of man plus machine. You know, this may be a, a little bit of a tangent, but that, that calls to mind, you know, current legislation in Europe that says that if an AI decides something against, you know, de declines a loan or, or, or a credit card or something, you have a right to know why that happened. Are, are you saying the way you think of it is the AI is just helping organize the data better? It's still a person that makes the call. And if that's the case, People aren't necessarily very good at saying why they did or didn't do a given thing, right? Or how, how do you see all that shake out? No, Byron, it's, a, it's actually a, a very, very, very important point that the world is just beginning to grapple with and understand, uh, which is why a little bit the human in the loop and uh, man plus machine is something that we are big believers in, that you cannot really, uh, unless it's, it's, it's pretty obvious, uh, and the algorithm is pretty clear, take the human out of the loop. So the way we would think about it in that situation is the AI is really augmented intelligence. I, mean, I know the, the world thinks about AI as artificial intelligence. We think about AI as augmenting human intelligence. So think about a human being, and all of a sudden the human being can sense more, can use that sensing to predict more, to actually do all of that real time with fabulous customer experience. And then the human being says, okay, I think I know exactly what decision to take and I know why I'm going to take it. So it goes back to if today a risk manager in the absence of AI takes a decision, 
they do it on a on a certain basis that they can put down on a piece of paper and justify tomorrow they will actually have to say two things they say i got this input from ai from from the machine and then i used my uh, following seven other things to finally say yes or no now here's where the rubber hits the road i think the next question is going to be tell me why your machine gave its recommendation can you do traceability of the decision of the machine and i would say that's one of the big sciences that is still being explored uh, the specific example i gave you and the platform that we have uh, we we did an acquisition 2 years back of a company based in boston that actually had built this on computational linguistics and it has traceability that's one of the big things that our banks and our risk leaders when we work with banks and chief risk officers look for in fact when you deal with regulators it doesn't matter which industry when you're dealing with the fda on uh, adverse event reporting which is another example of a use of ai that we have uh, it it means that you better show how the machine helped you take a decision so can you trace that thing down now as you get to neural networks as you get to that level of decision making it becomes a little queasy to be able to actually say exactly how the decision was taken but in the world of computational linguistics that we have so far our platform is able to do it but it's a big question still to be answered in the world as ai becomes more ubiquitous well i i think you hit the nail right on the head i mean there's two you you i i think you can kind of see it as a continuum on one end you have an ai that tries to diagnose a disease and you 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 definitely want to know why it <laughs> got that on the other right. end you have an ai that suggests where you should go for dinner and maybe that's not as important that you understand the ins and outs of that algorithm so do you think though that traceability slows down the progress of ai and let me let me make the the case real quickly if if i called google up and said from for the search i'm targeting uh, i'm number 4 and my competitors number 3 why are they 3 and i'm 4 and i assume google would say oh, well you don't know i mean there's 600 <laughs> different algorithms going into there it could be any number of things so if you said to google no 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 you must be able to say why i got ranked 4 and you got ranked 3 doesn't that inherently limit ai and do we are we just going to have to live with that limitation so again uh, again a great great point that you raised uh, byron uh, i'll start by saying any technology uh has an opportunity to really add value to humankind uh and add value to the world in the long term make life better make our planet more sustainable that's been the journey of technology over hundreds and thousands of years however we all know that that technology uh, can also be used to harm humankind to in the wrong hands do the wrong things now by definition therefore if you want to find a way to increase the former and reduce the chances of the latter you need governance you need mechanisms of uh, of governing bodies you need rules to be followed one could call them bureaucracy one could call them hey that's going to slow technology down and the answer is yeah of course it does a little bit um so so i would say it is part of the journey that most technologies go through Uh, I think the reason why AI is so front and center in this journey is that it is more ubiquitous than many other technologies even before it becomes ubiquitous. The, the fascinating thing about AI 
is that if you go back to the pre-world of electricity, uh, no one really thought that electricity would become ubiquitous. And then today, electricity is, I mean, we can't live without it. Uh, in the world of AI, even before it has become all-pervasive, I think the world is talking about the fact that it will become all-pervasive. So therefore, conversations on ethics, conversations on governance, on misuse, on traceability are all on the table. It could slow some uh, applications down that you can't launch without actually making sure that you have dotted the I's and crossed the T's. But I think it's good for humankind. Otherwise, you know, you would have a series of blow-ups. They may not be very big blow-ups, but that would further slow something down. So actually, a little bit of go slow to go fast is not a bad idea in this, in this particular space. Fair enough. Fair enough. So you mentioned three areas of artificial intelligence or augmented intelligence that your company is focusing on. I'd love to go through each one of those. The first you offered was computer vision. What, what are you doing there? What are the challenges and what's the business use case and what results are you seeing and all of the rest? So, so it's, a, it's, a, it's something that all of us can relate to, Byron. So I'm going to uh, spend a couple of minutes explaining the, the, the situation. So think about any of us driving on, uh, on the highway and meeting with, let's just call it a fender bender. And uh, so it's not a big accident, but we do, you know, we have a fender bender. Now, typically you would call a 1-800 number. You would have to then, uh, you know, wait for someone to take photographs or you have to take photographs. Today it becomes, becomes a little better because you can take photographs and send it in. But the world of AI and computer vision gets to the point where you press an app you go around the car because the app actually then um, tells you exactly where to go and what pictures to take. You're directed to take, let's say, 30 different snaps of the car in different angles. And then at the back end, as those pictures come through the wires, it's hitting a massive database of all kinds of fender benders and all kinds of accidents of all kinds of cars going back into history. And lo and behold, uh, the algorithm runs in the background and says, I think I recognize a pattern here that I'm going to call out. And I think this car is going to, uh, it's going to cost $732 to fix this insurance claim. So here is an approval for you, Mr. Customer or Ms. Customer, for $732 and you just got approved. Think about I'm in an accident, I'm sitting out there, and I get an approval on the spot for my claim. It is possible. Experiments are going on right now. Uh, and obviously, these have to be fine-tuned a lot. Data is very important. Without data, uh, algorithms and AI are pretty meaningless and worthless. And then, of course, we are big believers that domain is very important. Do you really know uh, how much and what kind of data to look for? It's important to go inside the car and look at the dashboard. It's important to go inside the car and see if the steering wheel and the suspension have a problem. So, so all of that is domain, domain intelligence about the car, domain intelligence about auto insurance, domain intelligence about the Honda car or the Mercedes car and et cetera, et cetera. So the combination of domain and context with data is what gives amazing power to AI. And if you bring that together in the context of computer vision, which is actually one of the more, more advanced AI technologies out there, I think you can change the world of uh, auto claims uh, management for the benefit of a huge number of consumers, for the benefit of insurance companies, for the benefit of everyone. Uh, 
Um, and I think it's a use case that we are progressing on. It's still not industrialized. It's still under pilot and test. It'll take some time. I'm, I'm sure many others in, our, in various industries in the insurance industry are progressing on the same. And I'm sure we'll have our lessons as we go forward and go through these pilots and then subsequently industrialize it. But that's one example of computer vision. Excellent. And the second one was computer linguistics. Are you talking about conversational technologies like chatbots? Or are you talking about voice recognition? Or, or what, what, what's your area of specialization in there? So computational linguistics is actually language, Byron. So obviously it could be, it could be spoken language, whether it is a chat or a, or a, or a conversation, etc. But you could always convert that today with very good technology from speech to text. So let's really focus our attention on text, human language. Human language, amazingly enough, is one of the more complicated puzzles for... Um, machines to unravel, for AI to unravel, because there are so many nuances, uh, there are so many ways in which expressions are used, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, the use case that we have been uh, working on, and actually we've, we've had it industrialized, is the one that I went through, which is, can it at least read um, balance sheets and P&Ls with footnotes? written in English language, but written in, let's say, 10 other languages, to convert them into financial statements that has a standard form to it and a standard definition to it? And the answer to that is yes, it's possible. So taking a look at unstructured documents, so think about the world of business. The world of business probably has billions of people trying to read unstructured documents and make sense out of it, and then compare it to something else. So I'll give you another use case of this. So think about a large retail grocery chain that spends a billion dollars on transport as it supplies groceries from the wholesale distribution unit to its spread out retail uh, chain across, let's say, the US. And it uses transport contracts, probably 7,000 contracts with 7,000 transporters across the US. Some contracts are large contracts, some contracts are short contracts because it is from, from one uh, city in Chicago to the suburbs of Chicago. Uh, another could be from San Francisco right up to Chicago. That's a long transport contract. Now, every day, that retail chain would receive hundreds and thousands of transport bills. And the transport bill would say, hey, for transportation that I did for you, from Chicago to the suburbs of Chicago, here has $220 for that truck. And sitting inside that bill is a variety of line items. Let's say one line item is the truck got delivered to the, to the distribution uh, retail outlet at 8.15 p.m. Therefore, uh, the customer has to pay 30% uh, overtime charges for the driver, uh, which could mean that bill goes up by $22. Now, in the world without AI, when that bill comes in, uh, someone quickly scans the bill and makes sure it's paid. Uh, actually, in the world of AI, you would actually read the contract, the machine would read the contract, and actually be able to pick up the language that says, this particular contract for delivery by this transporter from Chicago to Deerfield in Illinois, uh, the overtime kicks in only at 9 p.m., not at 8 p.m. Therefore, this bill of $22 extra 
is not right. So therefore, the bill has to be $230 minus $22, and that's what should be paid. I mean, the number of situations where you have unstructured data in documents and in other forms that then has to be compared with structured data, bills, or, or, or claims, or financial statements, and then an answer has to be provided and a decision has to be taken. So one way to think about it, Byron, is in the world of decision-making, where prediction and decision-making is important, and human beings used to do it, there is a premium of how much time a human being can spend on things, and there is a cutoff. Unless something is valuable enough, it's too difficult for a human being to spend time. A machine can spend all the time that they want because the machine can do it very fast at almost zero cost. So therefore, prediction and decision-making in that environment using language and data becomes ubiquitous and almost zero cost. Uh, that changes the world of so many things. If you can make the cost of prediction zero using AI, think about where you can use prediction. You can use prediction in so many places that you don't use prediction today. So do you think that, so you know the difference between narrow AI, which is AI that's built to solve a problem, and this, this idea of a general intelligence, a versatile AI that is as, as versatile and as a human. Take that to your linguistics example. Do you think, when, when you talk about contracts, reading contracts, um, or financial statements, we'll go with that one, you have a really restrained vocabulary of words that are going to be in there. There's uh, fiscal year and cash flow. And, uh, right. But you're not going to have, uh, you know, ice cream sundae and all <laughs> other things. So is it your belief that that's doable because we're dealing with a really constrained vocabulary? Or do you think we're going to kind of crack the Turing test problem and we're going to understand general rules for reading for reading um, all kinds of stuff? So, so, Byron, you, I mean, I'm going to use the phrase that you used, which is you hit the nail on the head. Uh, I would say uh, today, the world we uh, grapple with, that I grapple with, is the world of artificial narrow intelligence. Um, I personally and, and the company, Genpact, uh, are big believers in a narrow application of uh, AI to augment the way human beings take decisions and do prediction in order to improve three things, experience of users and customers, dramatic improvement in experience, almost to a point of saying, wow. Second, cycle time. I mean, you almost can imagine almost everything becoming real time. And the third is the ability to really predict so that decision-making becomes so much better. It's at the intersection of those three, but it's narrow, which means you're trying to solve a specific problem. The problem could be, hey, I want to identify specific cancer tissue in the specific portions of the human body that I'm gonna feed you data on, or I'm gonna find a way to solve for the signals that are coming out of these millions of data. And by the way, it's a needle in a haystack search for the very, very faint signal that tells me that maybe this particular drug that is being prescribed under the following very unique conditions creates a problem. 
That is a real human problem in the world today, but that's a very specific problem. Our belief is the world of AI has so much opportunity in its narrow application that that's where I think a lot of our time and the world's time is being spent on right now. And that's why it requires data from that domain and it requires intelligence of the people who understand the domain. So to your point, uh, what does fiscal year mean? What does fiscal year mean in Japan or in India or in Europe or in the US? It's different. Um, by the way, what does it mean when someone says, I changed the fiscal year this time to nine months because I had a change in fiscal year for a deliberate reason? How do I identify that? But that's a great example where some very clever finance people have spent time with the machine to actually help it learn the language better to then be able to apply it. Uh, so the computational linguistics platform is the base platform without which nothing can happen. But unless domain is built into it, it can't solve a specific problem. And then finally to your question, is there a world where ultimately um, general intelligence, AGI, will happen? And is that going to be able to solve any problem at a more horizontal level? I, I, I would say, uh, I'll, I'll start by saying, Byron, I'm probably the wrong person to answer the question because I haven't studied it at a level of science for me to be capable of answering the question, but I'll give you my view. My view has always been, uh, in the long run, we all underestimate where technology is gonna take us. In the short run, we overestimate. So in the long run, I would argue that language is gonna get decoded, almost to the point of generality, the ability to read and understand any language and understand the context, etc., is gonna get better and better and better but it's still far away from extracting emotion, empathy, um, deterministic decision-making. And this is one of the interesting things about AI. What if the human being, the pattern says, this is the decision you have to take. The machine says, this is the decision you have to take. The human being says, I got it. I'm deliberately gonna take the opposite decision. Only a human being can use willpower to take the opposite decision that patterns and prediction is telling you, that is still, I don't know. I don't know whether AGI will ever get there. Well, I, I think, I think you're, you're right in that when, when I think of, a, of an AI, a narrow AI reading something and quote unquote understanding it, and, and I use that word very cautiously because the computer doesn't understand anything, but right. in, in the sense that we use the word, I've seen it work very effectively on recipes because recipes, um, they have ingredients. Those ingredients have amounts. They have temperature. They have 30 or 40 terms, saute, julienne. And, and it's, it's highly reliable for, uh, for you to feed recipes into an AI and have that turned into a database. Um, and I just wonder from a practical standpoint, if you want your AI to evaluate contracts and just say, um, what, what am I agreeing to do? And or, uh, did this person fulfill the contract? I wonder if we're going to get to a point in any reasonable time where we have enough faith in it, because a contract has, as like you said, all of this nuanced language in it. And so 
I hear what you're saying about if we can, that human time is expensive and computer time is cheap, but we have, and that, but the savings we get by using computer time have to pay for uh, all of the inaccuracies that it, it may have. I mean, so don't you see that, I mean, do you think that for a long time to come, the computer is going to try to take that contract, turn it into structured data, but a person's still going to have to go through and check it all? Or, or do you hold out hope? Because I think contracts are a great case. Like I get things right now and the numbering isn't even right. It'll have point one, two, four, five, and seven because something got edited. Or they'll have dates in a European format sometime and then in a, an American format sometime. Like the simplest things in the world still get through. And I just, as much as I would love for this world where the machine is turning unstructured data into structured data, I just wonder when it's going to happen. And it sounds like you're actually working on real use cases. So that's why I'd like your thoughts on that. So give me a prediction of what will happen next year on a reasonable time horizon. I would say we're very early in that journey, Byron. So therefore, some of the use cases that I just described are actually the use cases that are still not fully uh, industrialized. I mean, they're still experimental. So when we work with a client, they often start in any of these examples with, let's start with one little portion of my business. By the way, when we start, let's make sure that actually we are doing a parallel run for the next six months where every decision that is being taken by the machine is actually compared to a human being taking a decision. And let's see how that plays out. Then let's add something else. Then let's add something else. So, so I would say we are in the early phases of that journey. Therefore, I think there is a long way to go in terms of really critical human decisions being taken over by machines. Uh, so that's one, one way I would answer the question. The other way I'd answer the question is that there are so many simple things that actually machines can can actually take over and do and there are so many of them that then allows the human being which is why the word augmented is so important that then allows the human being to spend more time on things they actually should be spending more time on so think about uh, the large finance teams in companies really thousands and thousands of people cpas and financial experts sitting in companies whose job it is to analyze financial information, sales data, market share data, uh, pricing data, et cetera, et cetera, and actually come up with, here's where we, we think the world is going. Here's what we think is happening in the business. Here is the trade promotion this customer ran on this product, and here's the impact of that trade promotion on sales, et cetera. The reality is most of those teams spend, I mean, if you do a poll, 70% of their time collecting data, cleaning data, doing what you just described. Oh, this is European date. This is not American date, and so on and so forth. And finally, the last 30% of the time, they scramble to add value. If that 70% gets done uh, a lot by a machine in the more simpler tasks, uh, the human being can expand their value because the time available to them expands so much. So I think there's a big journey on that. Now, having said all that, we all know that these are geometric progressions. These are exponential curves. So I would say that sometimes 
uh, over the next few years, some of us are going to be surprised by some of the things that you know machines can do and will do. I would still argue that there is so much that a human being could do if only they could do it fast enough. There's so much that a human being could cover if only they had enough time. Not to talk about billions of billions and billions of people in the world for whom a lot of things are not even accessible. I think AI is going to make uh, so many things accessible to more than two or three billion people who otherwise may not have access to healthcare, may not have access to finance, may not have access to contracts, to insurance. Because when the cost of prediction and the cost of delivery of that becomes real time and zero, I think you're talking about, I mean, think about, think about healthcare. Um, uh, let's, take, let's take my, the country I, I grew up in, India. Uh, I would argue two thirds of the country in India uh, don't have access to great healthcare because they don't have access to great diagnosis because diagnosis is too expensive, it's too far away, et cetera, et cetera. Now think about handheld devices being able to understand data that it measures um, pretty much on the ground in a highly distributed, democratized way. And for that to be able to predict diabetes, the fact that you are going to get diabetes 15 years from now, or you're going to get uh, a, a, a blindness in your eye by the time you hit the age of 35. I mean, these are two chronic illnesses, for example, that countries like India face. You could democratize and make the cost of healthcare so low that everyone has access to it. So I know the world struggles with, is AI going to destroy jobs? And at one level, the answer is yes. But at another level, there is so much to do. The world is so much uh, value yet to be created. There's so many people who have no access to it that this is one more major breakthrough in technology, like electricity, like the steam engine, that is going to change the world in many, many ways. Um, you, you let that go by that you think AI is going to cost jobs. Do you mean on that it's going to destroy some jobs and create some jobs and the effect nets out? Or do you actually think we're going to have substantial net job loss from the technology? No, I'm a big believer, uh, Byron, that there'll be a net gain. Um, but, but that's no surprise because I'm an optimist at heart. Um, and I also look back at history and say, it's always been the case. Of course, this is different because it is, uh, you know, probably faster in its cycle time. Of course, it's different because it's impacting the generation that is getting impacted in its lifetime. And those are two big differences between the industrial revolution and, let's say, the revolution of electricity and so on, and even the computer revolution. Uh, the revolution of AI could actually impact people who are 30 years old today, where at the age of 40, they may have to reinvent themselves. Uh, but at the same time, I'm also a big believer in the, just the entrepreneurial and innovative and survival spirit of humans. And I think we'll break through uh, into a new world where we use all of these things to do new things, which we can't even imagine. It's unimaginable. And I read, I read a research article published by a professor at the University of Toronto, uh, who I follow very well, uh, on the topic of AI, etc. And I think the example that I read that he gave just fascinated me. And he talks about semiconductors 
um, basically making mathematics and arithmetic zero cost. And what that did to photography, photography went from chemistry-based photography in the world of Kodak to digital photography in the world of uh, binary zeros and ones. And as a result, a whole industry got destroyed. Uh, Kodak and, and all of the people involved in that industry got destroyed. But a whole new industry has now got created in digital photography. The number of people involved in digital photography, I think, far exceeds the number of people involved in chemistry-based photography. You and I take million more photographs in our lifetime than otherwise we would. We use photography for things that we could never imagine. Uh, we use photography to actually pay insurance claims uh, after a hailstorm uh, because we can assess roof damage uh, based on photographs from satellites. Who could have imagined that? So I believe that AI is going to do to prediction what semiconductors did to mathematics. And we're going to use prediction where we can't even imagine today. And that's going to create jobs. So in the short run, like most technology revolutions, there's going to be pain. There's going to be pain in groups of populations uh, who are going to go through that pain because their jobs are no longer needed. New jobs are needed. So there's an element of retraining, reskilling, relearning that has to happen. New kids who go to college have to get prepared to learn new things. Otherwise, they will not be valuable in the workforce of tomorrow. So all of that has to happen. And I think the responsibility then falls on the individual. The responsibility falls on companies and enterprises across the globe, including our, our, our company. And it falls on governments and universities, etc. All of us have to retool ourselves to the new world. But I'm a, I'm a huge optimist. There'll be net job creation. And the, and the problem is, you, I don't think we can write down what those jobs are. I would I would agree with all of that, but I don't even think you have to go back to the Industrial Revolution. You can go back just 25 years ago to the creation of the internet, and it it's changed so much, right? And and it's it's upset the apple cart and overturned a bunch of industries, created a lot of wealth, created new opportunities, created a million companies. You know, it's made Google and Amazon and Etsy and eBay and Airbnb and all of the rest, <clears throat> but. Do you think it was disruptive to employment? The, the employment rate remained low throughout the last 25 years, right? And, and so do you think whatever we saw in that 25 years with the internet may be a good indicator of, of AI, or are you even saying AI is going to be more disruptive of employment than, um, than the internet was? I, I think it's a fabulous point, uh, Byron, because here is what history has shown us in the world of the internet. Um, uh, there, was a, there was a theory of the case that uh, bank branches will dramatically decline and disappear. There was a theory of the case that, uh, you know, you won't need bank tellers at all. That theory was postulated when uh, people said, hey, there's the ATM and there is web-based banking and mobile banking and you're done. Well, uh, there was a period uh, when actually the number of branches and the number of tellers actually initially grew. And the reason it grew was because more people started banking. It was easier to bank. And in the process of more people banking and in the process of, uh, you know, people going to the ATM machine, they actually had some more questions. 
and therefore they walked into the branch with the one teller sitting there who no longer did the old job of counting cash and handing over but did a new job of actually answering some complex questions and so on and so forth so actually the number of bank tellers went up now i think today tellers are going down branches are going down but it's been a 20 year journey um the only thing that i wonder and i don't have an answer by and your question i'm actually a little bit uh copping out when i tell you i don't know part of me says that actually will go through a similar uh not that disruptive uh, journey where unemployment rates will remain in the band it's been in uh give or take a few percentage points but one the other part of me says is this far more exponential curve uh than uh anything has ever been is there a combination of forces here of moore's law storage uh, speed uh, availability of data electronic data uh, and the ability to compute at this pace and speed have all of that come together to almost create the fusion reaction or fission reaction i don't know um, something in me tells me that human beings are human beings because of the our entrepreneurial spirit will find a way to create value even in that journey now individually i think people are going to get impacted some people are going to be left behind uh, just as just as all revolutions have left some people behind i think society has to find a way to to bring them along to the extent they can some of the some of the uh, things that we've seen across the globe from uh, populations rising up and saying we are getting left behind and this has happened in so many economies i think is partly a reflection of some of that technology revolution and we are not even talking ai right now so you mentioned a, th- a third area that you're specializing in it was computer vision computer linguistics and then machine learning can you just talk a little bit about i mean yours is a is is an incredibly large company and and so i'm i assume you have lots of things going on there but can you just speak to either your overriding philosophy of what you're trying to do or some specific cases or um techniques and and all the rest so so i i'm i'm not a i'm not a deep technologist uh, barons uh, you know i'm i'm a, i'm an engineer by background but i've spent a lot of my time uh, trying to solve business problems so i'm going to not venture too close to answering the technique question so i'm going to leave that out but uh, we are beginning to use machine learning in areas where uh, by using machine learning we can get to answers faster and in reams of data that otherwise human beings would have found uh, more difficulty learning i'll give you a, a use case that we are working on and actually it is uh in pilot with a couple of uh pharmaceutical companies so in the world of pharma uh for every drug out there from every pharma company in the world uh in every jurisdiction in the world um every customer and consumer of every drug in every jurisdiction who who sends in some information in some form or fashion saying i had a tablet blah 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 last night and this morning i don't feel that great um and i send a tweet or i make a phone call to a 1800 number 
or I send in a note, I send in an email, all kinds of ways of sending in unstructured data. Uh, from a regulatory perspective, every pharma company is supposed to analyze that information that comes in and then report back to the regulators what their view is about that particular incident. So think about millions and billions of incidents coming in every day and you've got to parse it and you've got to define it and you've got to bucketize it and then you've got to report it. And then you go to watch for a couple of signals. You can imagine the amount of false positives here. I take a tablet, I have a you know, a glass of wine. I'm not supposed to have a glass of wine with that tablet. I have a headache the next day morning. I, I send in a complaint saying, hey, I had a tablet and I had a headache. Well, by the way, you had red wine. You shouldn't have had red wine, so it's your problem. So, so in that world, human beings today uh, gather that information, analyze that information, compare it to past ways we've handled those cases, and dictionaries of, of data definition published by the FDA and by various regulators across the globe, and then prepare the report to report to the regulator. Think about the effort, but also think about the time that it takes to do that. And, and, the, and the amazing thing here is that the longer that takes, it is potentially possible that some unique event that you should have grabbed hold of seven days earlier, you're now looking at it seven days later. And that could mean lives. Now apply machine learning to all the data coming in. And uh, because the data is so fragmented, is so inaccurate in the way it describes itself, um, how do you use machine learning and past information to create the feedback loop? So as more and more information gets processed, uh, the machine gets cleverer and cleverer, and therefore the data gets better and better in its output. And then you do that for one customer. The second customer comes in and says, I want to do the same thing with, with the same machine. So the machine starts doing this for 10 companies in the pharma space. All of a sudden, the machine has really become clever. The first customer gets the value of the other nine customers and so on. That's a great example of where we are beginning to use machine learning in that, again, narrow space of solving for adverse event reporting in the pharmacovigilance space. So we call that pharmacovigilance artificial intelligence uh, solution. And it's a big problem that pharma companies are grappling with. And if we can find a way to solve for it, to reduce cycle time and cost, that's a big win for humankind. Um, I would say machine learning is still in its early days in our use. Uh, there, are very, there are some very simple use cases, but the more complex ones of the ones I described, I think are, are, are a little behind. Um, and again, we are big believers that in the, in the overall scheme of AI, computer vision, computational linguistics, and machine learning are three uh, families under AI. Uh, and there are many more, but these three are the ones that we think in our kind of business we are focused on to change the way work gets done and add value to companies and to human beings. So, uh, like you, I'm an optimist. I think the, these technologies are, I mean, AI is the power to make better decisions, and I don't know that that's ever a bad idea. Uh, and I agree with you that um, the so-called bottom billion are people who haven't had access to um, healthcare in the example you gave. They have a smartphone, and that the power of AI is going to empower them to, to do all of that. Um, I'm bullish on the creation of jobs and all of the rest. But 
I, I, I wonder if you'll take just a moment and talk about any worries you have about the technology. Are you worried about its application in warfare or its potential to, well, I don't know. What are, what are some aspects of artificial intelligence that you think we need to be mindful of? Oh, many, many of them, Byron. So, so you picked on one that I know one of your, uh, one of your, um, uh, you know, one of your podcasts referred to. Uh, yeah, and, and this applies to so many technologies. I mean, if you look at nuclear fission, uh, what a great technology from the perspective of producing power. But at the same time, how much the world has gone down the path of misusing it for warfare. Uh, nuclear warfare and how much that 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 is still a topic of conversation today. Same technology, two different directions. Um, I think the world of AI is going to be uh, filled with such potential pitfalls, potential opportunities, and incredible challenges of misuse. Um, I think, therefore, governance becomes important. It's important for countries to come together. I suspect countries themselves uh, could go down the path of misusing AI. Some countries have actually declared uh, very proudly that the, they are going to own AI and therefore they'll own power, um, which, is, which is interesting. And I, and I would suspect at some level, probably true. Um, so, so I think it's going to be a real, uh, it, it's going to be incumbent upon thought leaders, um, academia, uh, scientists, technologists, uh, governments, uh, sane, rational governments, and uh, voices such as such as voices of AI, to actually bring that to the fore, to actually make it a real topic, to not brush it under the carpet, because you know you could have warfare created by machines that decide that it it, it is it is time to fight, uh, and humans are not even involved. Uh, that's a world that's possible if you allow AI to get there. Um, so so it's at some level, controlled nuclear fission is what produces great nuclear power. Similarly, controlled AI is what produces great value. I don't think uncontrolled AI is good for anyone in the world. Well, I, um, I think that's probably a good place to leave it. A lot of optimism, but a word of caution as well. I want to thank you for being on the show. It was a fascinating, fascinating hour, and uh, I appreciate your time. Byron, thank you so much for having me on the show. Really appreciate it. Wonderful conversation, and I will definitely be reading your book. Thanks a whole lot. Thanks, Byron. If you enjoyed this episode of Voices in AI, please check out the other ones. And in addition, Byron Reese hosts another podcast about AI called the AI Minute. Every day, it's a minute or two of daily reflections about AI. It's available wherever you find your podcast of choice. And in addition, it's an Alexa skill. So it can be part of your flash briefing every day if you own an Alexa device.